Arthur, I, I don't know what the Spirit told you, but I was sitting there trying to tell this. Yo, if he wants to go with Melchizedek, let him go. That's fine. He can, he can have it. But I guess, I guess the Spirit didn't listen to me. So thanks for listening to him. Um, good to be with you. Like Scott said, my name is Tyler Stowell, part of the Piscataway CCG. And I want you to think about your roommates this morning, whether current roommates or roommates maybe you had at one point in your life, or if you didn't ever have roommates, a family member will suffice, right? That brings back probably some fond memories. I have some great memories with my roommates, and I have some atrocious memories with some of my roommates, one of whom may or may not still owe me money, not that I'm keeping track, uh, 12 years later, uh, Ryan, but that's okay. Um, I also, though, as you think about your roommates, I also had a roommate named Melchizedek. No lie. I actually had a roommate named Melchizedek. And that's the only reason that I bring up roommates is because I had one named Melchizedek. But we're talking about some this morning. And if you were here last week, I really hope you were, because Scott did a great job uh, building out who Melchizedek is and the importance of him and what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us about who this character is. As a, as a quick recap, he's in four verses in the entire scriptures outside of Hebrews, and then he shows up in like a chapter and a half of Hebrews here. And he is a, a type of messianic figure. He is a, a foreshadow of Christ, a type of a savior. Not a savior himself, right? Of course, that's only Jesus. But he is someone that points us to Jesus. And we see this throughout Scripture. You see Moses, David, Ruth, Rahab. We can go down the list. All these types of figures that would point us to Jesus. We can even see this, right? In, in culture today, you watch movies and there's something about a certain character that just reminds you of the story of the scriptures. To me, as perhaps far away from um, a morality type of thing that Disney wants to get away from, they just can't get away from the story of the universe. Like as I watch princess movies with my kids, Moana jumps out. Like she just reminds me of Jesus in so many ways. They can't get away from it. So we see that in culture today. We see it all throughout scripture. And we see it in Melchizedek as he's compared to Jesus. We could say that Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. We learned last week, Melchizedek, um, he didn't have a beginning or an end, not because he actually wasn't born or died, but we just don't have record of it. And so there's this sense of Jesus being one who has eternally been the Son of God, who still lives and reigns forever today. There's a comparison there. And then we get into this stuff about Melchizedek as a priest, and that he wasn't from the line of priests, the Levites, which the law would have said he had to be, this, from a certain family line in order to... to uh, operate as the, the priest who would perform the duties to, to bring God and man back together, Melchizedek existed before all that. Well, Jesus also wasn't a part of that family line. And so again, there's another comparison here that the author is talking about. Today, the question really is in verse 11. That's really the main question that the author is trying to, to answer to the original hearers of this passage. I'm going to read verse 11 again. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one of Aaron? That's Aaron was the one of Levites. So here's, I think, the best way to say it, if I could be so blunt. It's almost like the author here is saying, hey, what's the big deal about being a priest and a Levite? What's the, what's the point? They can't deliver perfection. The law was just a set of commands that, that showed God's heart but was never meant to bring about perfection. Uh, they're not indestructible. We saw that word in here. They, they die. So that doesn't help us out very much. They're kind of just grandfathered into it. Like they're just in the, 
in the priestly line. And they have to offer these sacrifices day after day after day after day. We saw that in verse 27. And there's already been this other priest who wasn't a Levite, this Melchizedek guy, centuries and centuries before. So if there's another one that's not a Levite, namely Jesus, that shouldn't be a stumbling block to us. That's kind of what the author here is trying to say. And I, I really like the way the message version of the Bible answers this question in verse 28. So I want to read that. It should be on the screens. Verse 28 in the message. If, if it's going from, why can't the law, if you could have been perfect through the law, why do we need another priest? Answer in 28, the law appoints these high priests as men who are never able to get the job done right. But this intervening command of God, which came later, appoints the Son, notice the capital S, who is absolutely eternally perfect. And in order to enter into a perfect God's presence, we need a perfect, holy, high priest. Enter Jesus. But what was it that qualified him? I think that's really in verses 26 and 27. So I'm going to show that in the message here. So now we have a high priest who perfectly fits our needs, completely holy, uncompromised by sin, with authority, extending as high as God's presence in heaven itself. Unlike the other high priest, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins every day before he can get around to us and our sins. He's already done it once and for all, offered up himself as the sacrifice. And because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost. That's verse 25. That's really the take-home. He's able to save to the uttermost. Why? Because he lives forever. And that's the, that's the wondering that the original audience, I think, they, they really had. What's the big deal about Jesus? Some of the things that they were probably wondering about, a question that, that plagued the early church for most of the first century, is does, a, does someone have to become a Jew to become a Christian? Do they first have to assimilate into Jewish culture and Jewish religious rituals in order to become a Christian? Throughout the New Testament, that's a question they're constantly dealing with. In the book of Acts, the book of Galatians deals with that a lot. I think threads of that are here in Hebrews. And I think they are also wondering, hey, we're just used to priests dying. So Jesus died, though, but he's alive, but now he's not on earth. So is he still our priest? Those are the types of wonderings that, we're, that, that they're having. And the author here is saying, no, he is alive and he is our priest forever. So because of that, we can stop looking for other means of salvation. We can stop looking for other means of fulfillment. And instead, we can draw near to God, like it says in verse 25. That's kind of the direction that we're going. Keep drawing near to God. Forsake any other attempt to be made perfect. So I'm going to kind of jump around all over because I just think that's kind of where this passage goes. But I'm going to start back in, in verse 11 and look at this word perfection. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, Here's this idea of perfection. I've seen, and we've even looked at the word perfection in a lot of different places in the last couple of series. It's throughout Hebrews and other places. It's all over the book of James, and it has this idea of uh, being complete or something kind of brought to completion, completion brought to maturity. There's a, a morality type of sense here. This word is actually a little bit of a different word than that. It's this idea of the, the fancy definition, I'll just read it, completion of absolution or expiation common words I use most days in my life. Absolution and expiation. What does that mean? It's just this idea of bringing God and man back together. The problem is man is unholy. We're unclean. And so something's got to be done. Our sin has to be absolved. It has to be expiated. It has to be done away with. But these words, which one commentary I found this, this week that I loved, 
They're just It's one of those things, it's like, I knew that. I just couldn't figure out how to say it that way. But this makes a lot of sense. The purpose of religion is to bring the worshiper back into the presence of God. Like, I, I could have come up with that probably. It just made a lot of sense, though, hearing it that way. Something just clicked for me when I heard that. The purpose of religion is to bring the worshiper back into the presence of God. Problem is sin. Enter in a priest who deals with that. And so this idea of perfection, this word, means growth. There is a sense of maturity, but it's, it's tied to a root word that means inflation or something inflating. So I thought of like a balloon or growing up in Florida, we had an in-ground pool uh, as a kid, but in New Jersey, I know it's not as common. We buy, a, we buy an inflatable pool every summer for our kids. Maybe in 20 years, we'll add up the cost of those and think, oh, we should have just put one in the ground. But for now, we're going inflatable. And by the end of the summer, by the time we get there, that thing, it's got holes all over it, and it's got duct tape, and it's got flex seal and all kinds of other stuff I can find to try to keep it filled, to try to keep it without holes enough to fill up so we can use it. The whole idea is it's never meant to be permanent. It's an inflatable pool. Even if it didn't have any holes, I probably wouldn't still store it in my shed for a year because who wants to pull a pool out of a shed after a year and try to swim in it? It was never meant to be permanent. That's kind of the idea here of the goal is for perfection to happen, for this thing to be inflated, but it's not going to last. Now, maybe you've never experienced an inflatable pool, so let's go with a balloon. I would venture to say most of us have blown up a balloon at some point in our lives. No shame or judgment if you haven't, but think about a balloon. Think about blowing up a balloon for a birthday party. My wife, Allison, loves to celebrate birthday parties. She's very, very good at celebrating birthdays. I've had to learn a lot in order to meet her standards for her own birthday. But balloons, we always blow up a whole ton of balloons. And if you leave a balloon blown up long enough, what eventually happens? It, it deflates, even if there's not a hole in it. It deflates. They're not meant to last permanently. They're not meant to last forever. And I think that's part of what the author is getting here is that type of perfection, that type of inflating something, of bringing us back together with God. It's just the law, the priesthood was never meant to do that permanently. It just can't do it. And later on in in verse uh, 18 and 19 where it says the law is weak, that's the idea. It's just just not going to last. But it also says the law is useless. And as I was thinking about this, like imagine taking a balloon that has a hole in it and trying to blow that up. How well is that going to go? It's not going to do anything. It's totally useless. It's totally pointless. That's the idea of what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across here, is saying this whole Levitical priesthood, yes, it points us to Jesus, but in terms of bringing God and man back together, it's weak, it's useless, it's like trying to blow up a balloon that has a hole in it. So then the question becomes, okay, like we got to get a different balloon. We got to get something else that will get us to that place where we can be brought back together with God. So why is this system broken? Why are there holes in this system? And how do we fix it? So looking at the priests and the law, again, they were, they were good things. They pointed us to Jesus, but they had limits. The priests, there's three things that I see that the author is pointing out here. Priests were just obligatory, they were mortal, and they were weak. Verse 16, where it's talking about Jesus saying he's become a high priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, meaning he wasn't just born into it, he wasn't just grandfathered into it. The priests, they, they were 
just born into it. It's kind of like, hey, we're just looking for some warm bodies here. Are you alive? Yes, great. Are you a Levite? Great. Can you kill a sheep? Great, you're in. That's, I'm watering it down a little bit, but that's kind of how it was. Just obligatory, you're in. They were also mortal. We see this in a lot of different places. Verse 23, though. Former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death. They would die. And then you need a new priest when someone dies. And, and think about it this way. Yes, there's, one, you know, there's a handful of priests for a nation of people. But there was, there's still human beings. There was still probably a, a, a warm connection that would happen between a priest and a family as they might come on a regular basis to bring their sacrifices, right? And so maybe over time, there's this relationship that develops. And that priest knows the things that that family's gone through. They know, they know the, the trials they've been through. They know the losses they've suffered. They know the sins they've committed. They're offering sacrifices for. They've kind of journeyed with them through some stuff. And all of a sudden, that priest dies. And now this warm and understanding connection, you got to start all over again with the next priest. Like, that's tiring. Right? Anytime maybe you've had to rebuild a relationship, start from scratch, maybe you move, and now you're, you're in a new city, in a new place. Perhaps that's been your experience in the middle of COVID. How much harder in a pandemic to try to rebuild community and build trust with someone who can teach you the things of God. That's a hard thing. That's a bummer of a consequence of being mortal. And then lastly, they, these, these priests are weak. They're just not morally pure. They had to cover their own sins, verse 27, where it's talking about Jesus didn't have to do that. These priests did. They had to pay for their own sins. They just didn't have the ability to say, hey, here, take my perfection and you draw near to God. They were significant but limited, and they're working within a limited system. The law itself was just, was never meant to actually bring people back to God. It wasn't something in which they could draw near. It was actually a reminder of how far away they were from God. It didn't draw people in. It pushed them away as they engaged in these sacrifices year after year after year. It was useless and weak, just like a balloon with a hole in it. And just a reminder of how broken and hopeless they were. And yet, seeing animal after animal after animal being sacrificed, it did help them understand the cost of their sin. We'll get to that a little later. But they understood the weight of what their sin cost. But yet again, it, it didn't provide anything to actually take away their sins, as in Hebrews 10 the author writes about. How hopeless. What came to my mind is, as we've used this mountain climbing analogy throughout this series, which I just think is great, and I think it's also great that like no one here mountain climbs, and we're running with it. And so I love it. And it, we've been talking about this idea of Hebrews is, is written to a people who are in the wilderness. And we, on our faith journey, are in the wilderness. We've experienced salvation, just like God's people experienced rescue from Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, but they're in the wilderness wandering around, tripping over themselves. We have experienced, those of us that are in Christ's family, we've experienced salvation. He's rescued us from our sin. He's paid that debt. But we are not yet to our promised land of heaven one day, and we're experiencing the weight of living in this world, especially this year, the brokenness. We're going to have to start saying a couple of years now as we keep going. And we've likened this journey to climbing up a mountain, getting to the top of the mountain, meaning one day we'll be with Jesus face to face. And yet he is, he's, our, he's our guide. He's already gone up the mountain. He's shown us the way. 
He did it for us, and now we are climbing step by step, trusting him along the way. And the idea of the law and the priesthood and how pointless and hopeless it is, is what the author is saying, is I think of that like, that would be like climbing up this mountain, thinking you're at the summit, and yet it's a, it's a false summit or a false peak, right? Like think about you're trying to climb a mountain, get to a spot where there's just a great, beautiful view, and yet it's, it's high enough, and maybe the other peaks are far enough away, you can't see those, and you finally take that last step, and you get up on top, and then you just realize there's a little bit of a dip, and then a whole nother climb that's still got to happen, a whole a whole nother perhaps day's worth of a journey to get to the real peak. What a letdown that would be, a false summit. One thing that, that came to my mind, I remember in the movie Lone Survivor, which I won't pretend to know anything about the military outside of what I've seen in movies, which I know is almost exactly accurate to how it really is, of course. And so I say this with respect and honor to, to the military, but I remember in that movie, uh, as, the, as the main characters were trying to prepare for a battle, they were trying to get the high ground. Like, that's kind of the thing. I know that much, at least, throughout history. The high ground is the place to be. And so they're trying to get to the high ground, and they're climbing all over this rocky terrain, and they think they're finally at the summit, and they realize it's a false peak. And just the, the weight of the letdown of that, of like, I thought this was going to be salvation for us, and yet it's not. There's kind of that sense with the Levitical priesthood here that, this is what's going to save us. No, actually not. It's just a reminder of how in trouble we really are and how broken this really is. This, uh, to even give a, just a more detailed picture, I want to read just a, a short bit from a commentary here that kind of walks through what some of the Levitical priesthood duties are. And this is just on one day, the Day of Atonement, which was like the high holy day when atonement meaning to cover sin, right? They would, they would offer some, this is not theologically accurate probably, but some extra special sacrifices to cover their sins. This is kind of like the, 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 uh, the high holy day of the year. So this is what, what would happen, just to give you a picture of how much that priest had to go through on a regular basis. On the day of atonement, he immerses himself five times, sanctifies his hands and his feet ten times, then receives the blood of the daily whole sacrifice, tosses the blood, goes inside the altar to burn the morning incense and trim the lamps, then immerses himself again and dons the white garments made of fine linen. At this moment, the bull he's chosen and purchased with his own money is brought to him, places both hands upon it, makes a confession for the sins of his household and for himself. He then slaughters the bull, receives its blood in a basin, offers the incense within the holy of holies, the innermost sanctum, finally offered the blood of the bull at the altar for his sins and the sins of his family. Every year, century after century, this sacrifice was offered. And that was just one day's worth. Yes, maybe it's kind of the most intense day's worth, but that was one day. So when it says that Jesus doesn't have to do that, not to lessen what Jesus did, but that's a lot day after day after day for it to not really do anything. It's a broken, limited system. The question for us today, because I haven't been to any animal sacrifices and I would think you haven't either, how do we try to blow up a balloon with a hole in it, spiritually speaking? What ways are you trying to sacrifice in order to earn God's favor, in order to somehow think that will get me some points with God, that will bring me back closer together with God, and then I'll get what I really want? What ways in your life are you blowing up a balloon that has a hole in it, spiritually, pointless, useless, weak, insufficient? I think that's... The first question that 
the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand and consider here. At the end of the day, Scripture says that it's just a broken heart that confesses sin. That's the offering or the sacrifice that's pleasing to God is just say, you know what, I'm broken and I don't have actually anything to bring to the table. That's the place to start. But if recognizing our brokenness and how insufficient we are is the only place we land, then we're still just operating in, in a law and a priesthood. Enter Jesus, who isn't just obligatory, who's not mortal, who's not weak. He's actually brought into this with an oath. He's indestructible and he's able to save. Verses 20 to 22, it talks about this. It was not without an oath. Pastor Rich talked to us about oaths a couple weeks ago. Those who were formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Again, they were just grandfathered into it. But this one, this Jesus, was made a priest with an oath. The one who said to him, the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That word guarantor there, that is the only place in the entire New Testament that word is used. What comes to my mind, speaking of roommates, 15 minutes ago, Thinking about rental agreements at an apartment. I remember I was in college looking for a place to live with off campus with some of my roommates. And we would show up and we'd go through the whole thing and this is our budget and this and that. And okay, we're ready to sign. And they would say, all right, we need your credit statement or whatever. And I'm like, I'm in college. I don't have one of those. And they would ask for a guarantor. They would ask typically be one of our parents that would have to sign as a way of saying, hey, if for whatever reason these knuckleheads can't pay their rent, I'm guaranteeing that the debt will be paid. I've got sufficient funds to be able to pay that debt, to cover the rent, if for whatever reason the debt can't be paid. No payment will be missed. That's the idea here of what Jesus is, of what the author is saying. Jesus is the one who says, hey, in case there are insufficient funds, which because of sin there is, I've got everything I need to make sure that that payment is not missed, to make sure that our debt is covered, to make sure that our sin will be paid for. That's a beautiful picture. That's a hope-giving picture compared to how insufficient the old method was. Secondly, he's indestructible. What a great word in verse 16. Again, not on the basis of a legal requirement, but the power of an indestructible life. He lives. Death could not conquer him. This word indestructible is the... The prefix there, in, means not, of course, not destructible. That destructible part is this idea of, of the, the word really means to loosen something or to let something down. And the image that I found in studying it this week was of a traveler riding by, by horse who would kind of tie up their garments, their clothes, so that it doesn't get in the way, finally get to where they're going, some inn to, to stay at, get to their bed, and they can finally let down or loosen down their garments. There's this idea of just kind of like taking a breath. What it's saying is that Jesus is indestructible, meaning he never stops fulfilling his priestly duties. He never loosens, never lets down. He always lives to intercede for us, verse 25. He never stops being a priest for us. There's never a moment where he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out. You, you take over for a little bit. That would be bad news. But he always lives to intercede for us. And he is indeed able to save, verse 25. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, not through the law, not through the Levitical priesthood, but through him. 
since he always lives to make intercession for him. The save to the uttermost. I was wrestling with this some this week. Even my footnotes saying he's able to save completely or at all times. Save to the uttermost. One day, we're going to get to that mountaintop, those of us in Christ, by grace. We're going to get there. We're going to experience the fullness of being saved to the uttermost. The rub is, what about here and now? What about my journey up the mountain? And the problem is, I don't know what that saving will look like here. I don't know how much of the uttermost you will get to experience here in this life, on this journey. I would love to say, it would be everything you would hope for. But I don't know that. Maybe saving will come through repeated visits to a doctor's office. Or maybe it'll happen miraculously. Maybe saving will come through repeated Zoom calls with a counselor. Or maybe it'll happen through night after night after night of prayer, bedside, on your knees. Or maybe you won't get to fully experience what you hope you would here. And I don't know what the saving to the uttermost will look like here. I just know one day it's coming and that we need to hang on to get there. We need to keep climbing that mountain because the promise is that he is able to save to the uttermost, and it will happen. We just don't have the authority to say when, and that's hard. That's really hard. And yet that is where our hope lies. To, to bring us to a close, I want to go to one other place in Scripture where Jesus is compared, really contrasted with a Levite. The passage that came to mind this week is in the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, where Jesus is asked by a, by a lawyer, trying to test him, trying to trick him. And the lawyer has just, he's just concluded, because he's a smart guy, that love God, love people. Like, love God, love my neighbor. That's the, that's the whole Old Testament law. That's what it comes down to. But trying to, to get out on a technicality, he asks, hey, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story in Luke in Luke 10, 25 to 37, he tells this parable of a good Samaritan. Of a, of a, he tells a story, presumably a Jewish man out on, a, on a, a travel and gets taken over by robbers and just gets beat up, battered, stolen from, left for dead on the side of the road. Walks by, a, a priest walks by, and because he is one that is supposed to represent a holy God and wants to maintain some sense of cleanliness morally instead of actually do the work of God and express love to the, the man who's dying. He goes to the other side of the road and passes by. Next guy that comes by is a Levite. Same kind of thing. Out of a self-righteous, morally superior attitude, goes to the other side of the road and walks by. Then comes a Samaritan who was a total enemy of the Jews. Different ethnic race, a lot of hatred because of that between Jews and Samaritans. And he is the one that actually approaches this man with oil and wine and bandages. And he gets close. He touches the guy and cleans him, puts him on his own donkey and takes him to an inn, pays for him for several nights of, of rest. Says, I'm, I'm going to come back and help this guy. Jesus is trying to show, hey, I'm not who you would expect me to be. I'm not like the Levitical priest, perhaps, that you've experienced over the years. I'm somebody different. And I love just how tender he is. Jesus is comparing himself to the Samaritan. And I love how tender he is with getting close to this man who's left for half dead, which represents us in that story. 
Right? Notice how tender he is in your own life. He knows you intimately. You don't have to re-explain all of the troubles and trials and losses that you've experienced because now there's another high priest. You don't have to do that. He, already, he knows that. One, he already knows however much you've told him. Two, he knows much more than that because he knows you perfectly, intimately. You don't have to explain your angst and restlessness and hopelessness over COVID and over whether people should or should not be wearing masks and over whether you should or should not get the vaccine. You don't have to explain that to him. He knows that. You don't have to explain the fear of living as a person of color in this country. He knows that. You don't have to explain how and why you keep struggling with insert addiction. He knows that. You don't have to re-explain all over again how your past has led you to the broken place that you are now and the weight of what you're carrying. He knows that. He knows that intimately. And he's the one that comes near and offers to bring cleansing and healing and to stay with you. And yet the beautiful thing about Hebrews 7, 27 is he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He is in the story of the Good Samaritan. He is both the Good Samaritan and the one who was left for dead. I love this quote came across this week from Joy Tetley, uh, an Anglican minister that I've got for you up on, the, up on the screen as well, where she says, go to that next slide, where she says this, and I think we see it really well in the, in the Good Samaritan. In Jesus, God's heart is both expressed and broken. I love that. I love that thought there. In the Good Samaritan, we see God's heart is both expressed in the Samaritan as he, as he expresses deep, tender care and love for the man being left for dead. And yet we also see God's heart broken because Jesus is the one who was left for dead. Quote goes on, God's heart is both expressed and broken for Jesus is both priest and victim. In Jesus, God offers his life for us and to us. There can be no other priesthood to match this. This is the end of priesthood. Of this priesthood, all can taste the fruits. In this priesthood, all are invited to share. The purpose of religion is to bring man and God back together a priest is the one who does that. Jesus is the only one who can do that. And we're to forsake all others to draw near to him. He has drawn near to you with oil and wine and bandages ready to care so tenderly to bring you back to health, to bring you to restoration, to give you all that you need. He's drawn near and he always lives to do so. The question is, will you Draw near to him. Will you simply confess your need and receive that mercy? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thanks that this is who you are. This is what you've done. And for even a character like Melchizedek to point us to the weakness and the uselessness of any sort of human effort to be brought back together with you that he would also point us to you, Jesus, that you are the one who lives to make intercession for us. So all we have to do is draw near. You have done everything else necessary. God, so would you show us the ways in which we chase after other things, other ways of, of salvation functionally, and how you are the only one who can live to make intercession for us. God, would you meet us now as we take this meal of communion in Jesus' name, amen.